Hello and welcome to NLP Highlights, a podcast where we discuss recent research in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. In each episode, we discuss one or more NLP research papers with researchers working in that space. I am Pradeep Dasiki, a research scientist on the Allen NLP team. The topic for this episode is uh, compositional generalization in uh, neural network models of language. To discuss this topic with us, we have uh, Najom Kim, who is currently a faculty fellow at the Center for Data Science at NYU, and she will soon start as an assistant professor at Boston University. Welcome to the podcast, Najom. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to discuss this topic. Yeah, thanks. So let's talk about compositional generalization. What do you mean by compositional generalization? Can you give us an overview? Yeah, sure. So I think if you take the term compositional generalization literally, I think every NLP task that kind of involves testing on novel complex linguistic expressions kind of falls under compositional generalization. But I think at this point, it kind of conventionally refers to generalizations that are so-called out of distribution but such that we or the task designers believe can be solved through composing some parts observed in the training data. So I think an example that's intuitive, although it's from vision, say if you want to generate an image or like vision and language, if you want to generate an image from a text that says a human sitting on top of a hedgehog, then this particular kind of image would probably be rare in the training set given what we know about humans and hedgehogs, right? But if you know what the parts of the text actually mean, the hope is that you'll be able to compositionally generalize to this kind of out of distribution example. So I think the point is that most tasks that identify as compositional generalization tasks come with the assumption that their test examples are distributionally distinct from the training data. But I think it is often the case that even compositional generalization for coverage of out-of-distribution scenarios do refer to various different things. So I do feel like the term compositional generalization is a bit vacuous without specifying exactly what you mean by the generalization that you want to achieve. Got it. So this is uh, a specific kind of uh, um, robustness to distribution shifts that you want to evaluate right. uh, using, using, using a specific evaluation data sets. Right. And you mentioned that uh, in general, given that language is compositional, whenever we measure generalization of models in um, in language to, to unseen examples, we are probably uh, evaluating compositional generalization in some form, but we're not being explicit about it because we, we don't know what kinds of generalization these models are expected or are capable of performing. Right. But uh, the goal of uh, your paper titled uh, COGS, A Compositional Generalization Challenge Based on Semantic Interpretation, published in 2020, seems to be to design an evaluation set uh, that uh, evaluates specific kinds of compositional generalization, right? So yeah, can you can you tell us more about that data set? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess like a disclaimer is like not all aspects of language is compositional, but I think in this particular data set that we propose, we were looking at some examples or fragments of language that can be generalized via like some compositional machinery. So this data set called COGS contains a range of linguistic generalization that experimental and theoretical linguists either have found evidence for or like kind of have principled reasons to believe that this kind of generalization is possible. And at the same time, like I mentioned, these can be achieved if you have certain kinds of syntactic and semantic machinery 
that allows for the composition of known smaller parts. And the format of the task is semantic parsing, so assigning meaning representations to the surface form of sentences. An important property, like we mentioned before, is train and generalization set mismatch. So one example of the type of generalization being tested is, for instance, assigning meaning representations to sentences that contain a token that's only been observed as part of the subjects, and then assigning meaning representations to that particular token as part of the grammatical object. So in the training set, you'll maybe see examples like the hedgehog saw the cat and its meaning representation, and another sentence that says the frog danced, and asked generalized examples like the frog saw the hedgehog, where this particular token hedgehog is in a different, is part of a different grammatical rule. Great, uh, that makes sense. Uh, thanks for the overview. I'm aware of uh, a few, uh, some other uh, compositional generalization datasets like SCAN, CFQ, Clojure, etc. Can you tell us how uh, COGS is different from those datasets? Yeah, maybe I'll be brief uh, about each of these. So I think compared to SCAN, so for those of you who aren't familiar, SCAN is a task where this is still like sequence to sequence translation format but the input is a naturalistic language command. And then like you're trying to translate that into a sequence of commands that, a uh, sequence of actions that will actually execute that command. It's like a navigation task. So compared to scan, I think the linguistic expressions that we use are definitely more complex and the generalization scenarios are a little bit more diverse. So this COGS project actually did start off as trying to make scan-like generalization tests that are richer and I think we try to make explicit connections to human language research as much as possible for each generalization case we include in the data set. So that could be another difference. Compared to CFQ, compositional free base questions, I would say one obvious but kind of less interesting difference is that the meaning representation in the task domain is different. So CFQ is mapping surface forms to SQL queries. So naturally, the data points are mostly questions, whereas COGS meaning representation is lambda calculus based. And so our data set is mainly like declarative expressions. But with CFQ, I think there is kind of a philosophical difference underlying the approach to constructing the data set. So they start off from defining their desiderata for compositionality and kind of automatically optimizing over a formal measure that they define for this particular definition. Whereas in COGS, we also wanted to kind of build in a connection to human plausibility for the generalizations that we're testing and at times try to frame it as testing for human-like inductive bias, which I think is kind of the core difference between CFQ and COGS. So I think like tests like CFQ make a lot of sense in the NLP setup where like whether human learners can perform this kind of generalization given the training data almost doesn't matter, but like in a good way. But I think COGS had a dual motivation. It's a benchmark for NLP as well, but I also personally wanted to investigate the factors that facilitate generalization behaviors that human learners are known to be able to, or are purported to be able to demonstrate. So that would be another difference. Yeah, I could also talk about closure, but I think closure uses kind of a dramatically different task setup because it's like VQA, but I think like the spirit is very similar. So the authors took the clever data set, which was proposed to test visual reasoning. So you see kind of a synthetic scene with objects and you're expected to answer questions about the scene. 
And existing models are known to do pretty well on Clever, but then the authors of Closure construct like a new compositional test set focusing on questions that are more maybe more complex than what's given during training. And some of these more complex structures shares the same spirit with some generalizations tested in COGS, like deeper embedded structures. So I would say it's very similar in some generalization subsets, but the task itself is different. Okay, since you uh, talked about the different uh, tasks, uh, different end tasks in these compositional generalization datasets, I think it's uh, worth talking about the choice of the end task itself, uh, right? I mean, you uh, you mentioned that uh, COGS uses semantic parsing. Uh, COGS is essentially a semantic parsing task, uh, and you're testing compositional generalization in that setup. Can you tell us more why you chose semantic parsing uh, for COGS, and yeah, what, what how, how did you make that decision? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So, I mean, as a direct successor, or so we claim to scan, like, I think it made sense that we adopted the format of semantic parsing in that sense. But we did consider several different task formats. And I think an, like an entailment task did also come up in the discussion at some point, because as the logical translation has some implications about the entailments from the logical mappings of the sentences. Although, like, I guess it would be more like logical entailment rather than common sense NLI. But I think we wanted to adopt this semantic parsing form because there were some arbitrary decisions to be made about how to sample negative examples, for instance, if you were to cast this into a more entailment kind of a task. And directly generating the logical form seemed more straightforward as like an evaluation of each individual example. So if you had like a different form of task, maybe you should ask like multiple different questions or like have multiple different examples that pertain to testing generalization to that particular complex expression. So we thought semantic parsing was like a straightforward way to start off this task. But definitely, I think like other kinds of tasks are valid and possible. I think multiple people actually independently brought up casting the task as something like QASRL, basically casting semantic role labeling as QA format. And I think some people are actually working on this. So maybe there would be some interesting result in that area. So it's definitely possible. Yeah. And I think there's more interest in this kind of recasting um, the semantic parsing format because people want to apply the test in scenarios where heavy fine tuning is restricted because we use a certain logical language, formal language to express the logical form. So you kind of need fine tuning for the model to be able to adapt to that. But if you want to kind of zero shot or like do prompted testing with large language models, for instance, maybe you do want to change the format a bit to adapt to that setup. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Thanks. So I understand that uh, one of the reasons uh, behind choosing semantic parsing was the convenience in being able to generalize uh, uh, out of distribution examples, right? Which is which wouldn't have been possible for a task which is not so. I mean, a, a task where there isn't an explicit structure backing the data, right? Is is that essentially what you were saying regarding the convenience? Well, I guess regarding the convenience is, well, definitely what you said is true. There is some structure in the output that is interesting in this regard and testing the generalizations. But I think the the convenience I was more referring to, like it's, there is like a single evaluation you can do to check generalization to this single example. Whereas with like NLI or like other QA formats, there are like multiple things that you would need to ask about that particular example to check generalization. 
So it was more of a convenience of having like a single evaluation for a single data point. Okay, got it. That makes sense. Right. So one more question I had about uh, the choice of semantic parsing as an task is that if the model doesn't do well uh, on the out of distribution data set or for semantic parsing, how do we, I mean, it's possible that the model is not good at semantic parsing itself, right? I mean, for example, humans uh, are known to known to be good at compositional generalization, but uh, they, I mean, humans probably don't know enough linguistics or most humans don't know enough linguistics to do well at the semantic parsing task itself, right? So how do we make that distinction? I see. So the question is like the difficulty of the task itself of mapping natural language sequence to logical forms versus like the the capacity to do compositional generalization. Yeah, I do. I do agree with you that there is like that kind of disentangling to be done to conclude that there is an issue with semantic parsing versus like it's an issue with compositional generalization. I th- and I think like one of the reasons that we had like a development and test set that are IID in distribution is to kind of alleviate this concern a little bit. So that is to make sure that the model is able to actually do this task. So most of the models that we tested in the original paper and some follow-up work that we did is actually able to get almost 100% on in-distribution examples, which are different examples than you you were given in the training set, but doesn't pertain to these particular generalization scenarios that we were testing, right? the models have no problem doing that. So we take that to mean that in the general case, the models aren't really struggling with semantic parsing, but then they are struggling with this particular set of generalizations in semantic parsing form. So like if it isn't really about semantic parsing, it must be about like sort of the compositional generalization that is required to generalize to these particular scenarios of generalization. Okay, right. Uh, I understand what you're saying. So uh, because the models do well in the in-domain or in-distribution setup, you know that the models have learned the task well enough. It's just that in the out-of-distribution case that they don't do well. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I think this is a good point. This is actually a good place to talk about uh, the experimental setup. Uh, can you describe how exactly you're evaluating composition generalization? What do the models see at training time and what do, what kinds of examples are they expected to do well on at uh, test time? Right, right, right. So in the initial paper, we evaluated very small. Well, I guess let's talk about the setup first. So we create a training set and a generalization set, and then these contain different sets of examples. And then for certain generalization types, we have some held out lexical items or let's say context controlled lexical items that only appear in certain constructions and not others during training. And then the models are trained on those examples. And then in the generalization set, they are asked to generalize to constructions with these particular held out lexical items, but in now novel constructions. But I guess like the constructions themselves are seen during training. So it's like the novel composition of known grammatical structures and a lexical item that hasn't been observed in that particular construction. That's one type. And then there is also generalization to novel structures where you have already seen all of the parts that are needed to interpret that particular structure, but you actually haven't seen that structure during training. And by structure, I mean like the posited grammatical structure behind the expressions that are in our data set, but obviously the parses actually aren't given. So the model actually has to figure out 
the structure behind it if you if it wants to determine whether it is structurally novel or not. So yeah, that's the training setup. And it's a sequence to sequence task. So the input is a sequence of tokens and the output is also a sequence of tokens, but now in this logical representation that we're using as meaning representations. Okay, I understand. So can you give me can you give me some more examples of the kinds of generalization, um, specific examples of, uh, you mentioned uh, um, the lexical generalization example earlier, but can you give me more examples of other aspects like, say, deeper recursion or uh, verb argument structure automation that uh, were mentioned in the paper? Yeah, sure. So one example of deeper recursion is deeper depths of embedded modification. So for example, you might see during training something like, I saw the cat on the table, and then I saw the cat on the table on the floor. But then at, at test time, you might be able to, um, you might be asked to generalize to expressions such as the cat on, I saw the cat on the table, on the floor, in the house, or something like that, where in the house you've already seen as part of some other expression during training. So you are you're asked to generalize to deeper degrees of modification with this prepositional phrase modification to the noun phrase. And you've seen all of the parts that are necessary to generalize to the novel expression, but then this particular depth of embedding hasn't been observed during training. So that's one example of a structural generalization that pertains to the deeper recursion case. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, so let's talk about the results. Uh, what uh, models did you evaluate uh, in the original paper? And maybe if you have any other follow-up results, uh, what are the general trends? How do the models do on these uh, on these evaluation sets? Yeah, so in the initial paper that proposed this task, we evaluated quite small models. Like even back then, I think like even back then, like in that, that time, it was pretty small models, like a two-layer LSTM and transformer encoder decoder models. And what we found was that we found a huge discrepancy in the in-distribution generalization sets that I've mentioned before, which is also compositional in some sense, right? And then there was a gap between that generalization performance and the out-of-distribution cases, which was the target generalization that we were testing. So the in-distribution accuracy was almost like 99% in like every model that we tested and like all random initializations of the models reliably. But I think the overall generalization performance, the out-of-distribution target case was much lower. And it also had higher, much higher sensitivity to the random initializations of the models. So I do want to mention quickly here that we used early stopping for our models based on like development set performance, which is the IID generalization. And some follow-up work did find that just keep training the model longer can actually lead to better distribution generalization performance, but with, although you don't really see any like substantial gains in on the depth set. But I think what is true here, despite these results, is that even if the models display the same performance on in-distribution generalization, that doesn't really reliably predict the out-of-distribution generalization performance that we're interested in. I think that's just generally true. And there's a huge variation among models that do almost perfectly on this in-distribution set. And typically, I think like you don't, even if you train for longer and do other things with hyperparameters, you don't usually get perfect out-of-distribution generalization accuracy just by training longer. And I think it saturates at about 80% or so. Okay, okay. 
So yeah, what what are what are the high level trends uh, in the results? What's the general takeaway? Yeah, the high level trends when in the original paper was that there was this like IID OOD gap, and we also noticed that this kind of low generalization performance was also being substantially driven by like the lexical generalization accuracy as opposed to structural. So most of the accuracy that you were getting is success on the lexical generalization case, which is similar to kind of a slot filling type generalization, whereas almost all of the models were failing dramatically on the structural generalization where you were required to extrapolate to novel structures that you hadn't seen during training. So that was like one interesting general trend that we found. And I think like this actually is pretty much well replicated in the follow-up works as well, because people also have found this like lexical versus structural discrepancy in sequence to sequence models. Okay, right. Uh, I I assume you're referring to the work from Weizenhorn et al. titled uh, Compositional Generalization Requires Compositional Parsers, which looked at seek to seek models and uh, uh, the, the how the biases in the model uh, impact the results on structural generalization. Uh, what's your take on that work? Yeah, my, my, my take is that it's a great paper. Maybe requires is a bit of a strong statement, but I think it does do a great job in like you know, synthesizing the general trend that people have observed in works that used COGS and summarize the general trend pretty well. So sequence to sequence models without structural priors don't really do well on structural generalization. And I think like it does also make a really important point, which is that structural generalization is only 20% of the original COGS generalization set. So this fact makes it seem like models are doing pretty well overall if you just look at the aggregate numbers reported on COGS, because you'll see about 80% generalization accuracy if you get all of the lexical cases right and then get 0% on structural. But what you'll notice if you look at the literature a little bit is that most of the pure sequence-to-sequence-based approaches tend to saturate around exactly that point, like around 80-something percent. And my speculation is that it's because they're getting almost 0% on the structural cases and are getting all of the lexical cases right, although not often they report this like lexical structural division. So I think like it would be informative to report this like lexical structural accuracy separately in works that use COGS, and that would be interesting to see. Okay. And in general, to improve the structural generalization capabilities of models, one approach uh, suggested by this paper was to actually explicitly uh, incorporate uh, the knowledge of uh, that structure into the model right? by actually using a parser, for example. Do you think that's the best way to go forward? And uh, how do you think the more recent results uh, on building larger language models with more pre-training, how do you think those results uh, uh, are relevant here? And for context, the model that was evaluated uh, by Weizenhorn et al. was the BART model, and uh, it's possible that results might be different uh, with larger models too. But... Yeah, there's multiple things here, so maybe I'll try to answer them step by step. So there's a question of like trying to improve the compositional generalization of models, and there's the other question of whether incorporating explicit structure into the models is a good approach. And then there's another question, which is that it's would larger models or like would, would more models with more pre-training work better? So 
I think if you're interested, I think that really depends on like what you're trying to do. So if you're asking about improving performance on specific compositional generalization tasks of interest that specific models are failing on, I think like incorporating structure into these models are like you're guaranteed to solve the problem, right? So if you like in the extreme scenario, if you like took the COGS grammar that we used to generate the data set and like make that information available to the models, you will be able to solve COGS. So there are like tailored solutions getting at that in the literature, for instance, doing some combination of explicit grammar induction and data augmentation, or like having like parsers in the pipeline and things like that. But I think like what's challenging is finding a more general solution that works in the general case. And I think explicitly structured models or like having parsers in the pipeline have a limitation of like not being able to like be scaled very well. So that's one weakness of the model. If you're thinking of like sort of a more general approach to like reconcile the current approaches in NLP and trying to solve compositional generalization with those models. So I would say that using explicit approaches for structure where it will work, but it's unclear whether that's like the way to move forward. And then there's the pre-training based approaches. So I'll be a little bit agnostic about whether like scaling up will solve this problem or like using larger, like more pre-trained models will solve this problem. But my guess is that it's not going to solve the structural generalization case completely. Just speaking from experience, I cautiously want to say that I think bigger models tend to not help for these cases because Santiago Antonian at Google kindly offered to run some experiments on larger models that I didn't have compute to run myself. And we saw basically the same discrepancy in lexical versus structural. So the larger models that we used were the largest T5, and they basically had 0% accuracy in the structural cases. But I don't have a good sense of whether this would generalize beyond the sizes we've tested. And people talk about like how there are like emergent capacities of these larger, like really larger models. So I don't have a good prediction about that. But my guess is like it's not going to help, but the jury's kind of out. Okay, thanks. So to summarize what you just said, uh, it's there are some some results which indicate that uh, more pre-training or just using larger models is not automatically going to solve the problem of uh, structural generalization. And uh, we definitely want uh, a general solution, not something that's tailored to COGS. So just building a parcel that would work for COGS is, may not be the right solution, but that's probably not the spirit of your evaluation set at all. Right? Well, I wouldn't say that. I think like it depends on like what you're trying to do with COGS. So like maybe you want to build some particular model where success on COGS is very like important in determining the success of your model for some downstream application or like some scenario of usage for your model, right? So in that case, sure, like you can like think of a tailored solution for COGS and then that would be great. But in the general case for like NLP models, like if you want like our current approaches to be able to compositionally generalize, maybe like trying to tailor trying to use the tailored approach might not be the most optimal solution in those kind of scenarios. Do you have any ideas on uh, what a general solution might look like? I mean, of course, I mean, we, we know that more pre-training is not, doesn't seem to be helping. So do, do you have any ideas on how we can go forward? 
Yeah, so that's what I've been trying to think of. That's that's the million dollar question, right? So I'm in the future, I'm trying to work on as a next step, like is there kind of the more lower level property of the network or like the representations used by the network that kind of facilitates structural generalization? Maybe there is some like geometric properties that are correlated with better structural generalization. I think like those kind of questions would be interesting to ask in the future. And then like if there is some way to get there without structural augmentation, like explicit mechanisms for structural augmentation, that would be great. Maybe there is like a loss function that you can design to kind of push the models towards a more compositional solution. But I think like it's to be done. Yeah, right, of course. All right, so since you talked about uh, pre-training, I think this is a good place to talk about some of your recent work uh, titled Lexical Confounds Can Lead to Overestimation of Compositional Generalization in Pre-trained Models. Can you describe to us what this work was about? Yeah, sure. So this actually relates to the discussion that we were having about pre-training, right? So we were mostly talking about the not successful scenarios of structural generalization in pre-trained models, but it seems based on prior reports that pre-training at least gives you better lexical generalization. And then pre-trained models seem to be doing pretty well on the lexical portion of the COGS task. But this work is about maybe that evaluation setup is confounded because of some properties of the data set and the assumptions that need to be met for this generalization test to work. So maybe it's good to mention here that many of the COGS tests are inspired by so-called like non-sword studies in experimental linguistics. So this is a setup where human subjects are brought into the lab and the experiment involves exposing subjects to made up words like wicked or dax and then asking questions about those words. Right. And here, if you think about the expectation of this experimental setup, it's that the experimenter has perfect control over the exposure the subjects get about those particular nonce words. So you control the context that the nonce words appear in, and you control the number of times the participants see them. And the assumption is that they haven't encountered these words before, before they came into the lab. But one property of the COGS data set is that real English words are used as lexical items that have different training versus generalization set distribution. So I'll call them like context control lexical items. And I've mentioned like, you know, like the hedgehog, the word hedgehog might appear as a part of a subject noun phrase and then maybe tested as a part of an object noun phrase during test time. And this kind of a setup isn't an issue if you have models that are trained from scratch on COGS only. But as soon as you start testing pre-trained models, the problem becomes pretty clear with respect to this particular assumption and then the setup because the models already have been exposed to those context-controlled items that we're using as analogs of the nonce words in human experiments. And they've seen these words many, many times in many different contexts, which might violate the assumption of the tests that we're using. So the paper is about like pointing out these issues with evaluating COGS, evaluating pre-trained models on COGS and trying to control for this setup in various ways and reporting the results. Right. So just to make sure I understand this correctly, the experimental setup presented by COGS relies on um, being able to control what kinds of, I mean, how, what context specific words occur in, right? And once you're pre-training a model on lots of data, you don't have that control anymore. But I guess one way to think about this is uh, that uh, models are black boxes and you're just trying to evaluate the generalization capabilities, right? 
how ex- whether or not they were pre-trained is, I mean, you could argue that it, that's irrelevant. Right? Do, do you see my point? But if we already know that the models have some prior knowledge about the lexical items, well, I guess like you could still evaluate it on COGS and see how they generalize. But I think like the generalization that they're testing is slightly different in that scenario, because that's more like a question where you don't know anything about like whether the model knows about these particular lexical items in the data set, but it is probably different than the distribution that these lexical items occurred in during like during their pre-training stage. So the COGS data set has this particular control built in, so like it's distributionally controlled. So what the question there is asking is, can the models adapt to different distributions of lexical items at fine-tuning time? Whereas I guess if you have like a perfect distributional control in any point of the model training, then um, then the question becomes like, what is kind of the inductive bias for this particular generalization that are inspired by human generalization? So I think like those are slightly different questions. I guess like you could treat it as a black box, see whether it generalizes, but I think like without knowing what the model was trained on, the actual evaluation numbers, what they tell you is like an answer to a different question, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, thanks. So, all right. And so now it's, uh, it, it seems like there's, there's, there's a confound uh, in that, that needs to be dealt with. How exactly do you do that? So what, what are the controlled setups that I'm using to control for these compounds? Yeah, what are the modifications in the setup that you're proposing? Yeah, so we had two ideas for modifications to control for these compounds. They're pretty simple. The first one is replacing the context control lexical items like hedgehog with character sequences that have not been observed in the training data at all. And the second one is actually adding novel tokens to the model, to the embedding layer, and using those as context-controlled lexical items. So the only difference is like how the context-controlled lexical items are represented in the data set that you're training the models on. Okay, right. So you're essentially making up new words and using those with the assumption that they won't occur uh, in the pre-training data, which is probably a pretty good assumption to make. Right. So there are, I guess, uh, some questions I have about this setup. Uh, often we use subword tokenizers um, when we're training, I mean, in most uh, recent transformer models, right? Which basically means that uh, even these new words will get uh, chopped up into smaller pieces, which probably seem more similar to the subwords of real words that occur in pre-training data. Is that not a problem? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the subwords themselves might not be novel, but if we go back to the human subject experiment analogy again, I think this isn't necessarily a problem given the assumptions that we have, because I think like human subjects also come into the lab being aware of maybe the distributional statistics of the parts of the nonce words that they're exposed to, and it's kind of like that. And the models, I think, like still have to learn from the training data that the sequence of this particular subwords that you have never observed before have to behave as a coherent unit to solve the generalization problems at hand. And I think this is sufficient for the sequences to count as something novel, even if you already have observed these parts somewhere else before. And I think like people might have different opinions about this, but I think for those of you who disagree, I think the second setup actually does take care of this problem completely. Okay, understood. So before we talk about the second setup, can you describe the results of the first setup? 
Yeah, sure. So we tested T5 by replacing these real lexical items with sequences that are randomly sampled. And we actually verified by searching through C4, the corpus that T5 was trained on to make sure that these sequences actually don't occur in that data set that the model was pre-trained on. And the results showed that making the substitution does degrade the performance compared to what's been reported in the literature. So this is actually about like 15 to 20 percent point degradation across different character sampling strategies that we tested. And I think this does suggest that the reported results in the literature have been overestimated to some degree for not having controlled for this lexical confound that we were pointing out. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting result. What's the gap like? I mean, how much were these results overestimated? Yeah, so so it was like 15 to 20 percent point. So I think it was I think the reported results with T5 based in the literature was like 83 percent generalization accuracy overall. And we were seeing something in the 60s. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, let's talk about the second setup. Now. What uh, what issue with the first setup did it fix? So the first approach, if you think about it, is always tied to your training data, right? So you have to be you have to make sure that your particular sampled character sequence didn't appear in your pre-training data. So to some to some degree, your training data always has to be generated anew for each different model that you test, and then this kind of like verification step has to be involved. And this means, more importantly, you can't always verify whether your particular sequence exists in the training data or not, because I think in this time and age, it's not often the case that all data that is used to pre-train models is publicly available or searchable. So I think this is like a fundamental limitation of the first setup. So the second setup, by adding a novel embedding or like a set of embeddings to the embedding layer of the model, this completely takes care of this issue because it is guaranteed 100% that the model would not have seen this particular token during any point of its training. Uh, right. So you're introducing new embeddings into the model. How, I mean, the, but, but the embeddings of existing tokens uh, are trained along with the model, right? But when you're introducing new embeddings, they're probably very different from the, the embeddings of the tokens that already exist in there, right? Uh, are you doing anything to fix this issue? Yeah, so we don't. We had two different setups: random initializations of the, of the embeddings and like an average initializations of the embeddings. So we don't really control for this factor in the random setup, but we did in this other setup called average initialization. We actually initialize the new tokens as the average of existing embeddings, so it's more kind of like less likely to be an outlier embedding. But neither approach worked really well, and there was not really a substantial difference between those, but maybe there are better ways to get at this issue. So I would be very welcome to suggestions on how we could like potentially remedy this kind of outlier issue for the model. But I do think that like be that it just doesn't work out of the box and it needs like extra solutions to take care of this issue is also part of the problem, right? Like you would expect that the model would be able to adapt to like novel embeddings. Or hopefully that would be useful in many scenarios. But pre-training seems to be pre-training is like exacerbating that issue or like making things difficult. That is part of the problem that we're identifying. So I think there might be solutions, but like as is, it's it's not trivial to get this to work. Um, just to be clear, when you said that both the approaches didn't work well, uh, does it mean that uh, the compositional generalization results uh, were bad or 
that the embeddings were too different somehow from the rest of the embeddings. Right, right, yeah. So I guess I haven't talked about the results yet. So uh, the results are that surprisingly with T5 models, we found that the generalization performance is extremely low under this approach and like both of the random embeddings and the average embeddings approaches. And then I think both only reached around five to six generalization, five to six percent generalization accuracy, even when like in distribution, like dev set or test set performance were still like 99% almost perfect. So they learned the task again, but their generalization accuracy was like way below what we would expect or like what has been reported with the unmodified version of the data set. And also it was the case that the critical training examples containing these particular newly initialized lexical items were perfectly learned. So in the training set, there are also examples that contain these tokens that are initialized with a novel embedding, right? So for these, those examples, the model did learn to map that to its meaning representation correctly. So it's not the case that model the model is totally incapable of using these novel embeddings, right? So it is able to use it to some degree, but it's not able to generalize using those embeddings. So there seems to be sort of a more complicated issue going on than like, oh, like these embeddings are um, just not being used. I'm not sure whether it's because these are too different from existing embeddings or not, but we hope to remedy that with the average embeddings that approach didn't work. There are maybe some other ways to do this and that's kind of the future work and I would be open to kind of suggestions for that. Sure, yeah, right. So, right, to, to, to be clear, when you said that the average embeddings I did also didn't work, you mean that uh, the drop was significantly large in the auto distribution evaluation, but it's it's unclear whether it's because uh, uh, the models were not being able to. So it's clear that the models are not being able to use the new embeddings. It's not clear whether they're not being able to use those because they lack composition generalization or because these embeddings are too different from existing embeddings. Is is that what you meant? Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Got it. Yes. Yeah. It, it does sound like a like an important challenge. It's it it, it does uh, it, it's it seems tricky to get this to work, right? I mean, how do you introduce new embeddings for these words without uh, while also making sure that they're not too different from the existing tokens, right? It's uh, yeah. Let me maybe I'll mention like another experiment in the paper that tries to get at this issue, like trying to disentangle the difficulty of like lexical processing, so to say, about these novelty of the embeddings and maybe their outliers and different. And then handling of these like lexical items is just hard versus compositional generalization. So we actually created an IID generalization set where the tokens that are involved include at least one of these novel items. So these are like not distributionally distinct in terms of the structure or like the composition or like the composition required from the original like dev and test set but they just contain novel lexical items that we initialized anew. So if the models do equally badly on this data set versus the generalization set, then that would mean that like, oh, there is just like a general difficulty of like lexical processing. But that wasn't the case. There was actually, I mean, like the performance was degraded on this like IID novel words data set compared to just like the IID test set that they had like 99% performance on. So there was degradation, but not to the degree of like 5% generalization accuracy. So there was like a further degradation 
in the compositional generalization case compared to this like IID novel words case. So that means it's like a compounded like difficulty there. So there is some effect of lexical processing, but there is also an effect like a further degradation that is not purely due to like the test items containing novel lexical items. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, um, thanks. That's, uh, that does clarify the question. I, uh, th that does answer the question that I had earlier to some extent. Thank you. Is there anything else about this book that uh, you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I will say that this, we, we did this experiment on like T5 only because that was what most people were using to report like good compositional generalization performance on COGS and existing work. But now we're in progress. There is some work in progress testing like different sequence to sequence models, including BART and this long former encoder decoder, actually from AI2, I guess. And then the trends seem to be a little different. Some models are better at using novel embeddings, but they fail on the character-based cases. So there, there are still like work in progress results, but there are some interesting like cross-model tendencies and variation. So I would encourage to look out for that when that comes out. Yeah, cool. I, I really look forward to reading uh, a newer draft of this paper sometime. Um, yeah, that sounds great. Um, uh, right. And I guess I guess one high-level point that I got from this book, the, uh, the third paper we talked about, is uh, uh, about the is that you are making certain recommendations on how exactly the community should think about COGS and what we should use COGS to evaluate, right? So, yeah, is there anything else regarding that point that you'd like to mention? Yeah, sure. My recommendations, I think, like, how to use COGS really depends on the model that you're using and the question you want to ask through the data set. But I think like in general, if you're evaluating models that have been trained on some data already, I think the character sequence substitution approach would be kind of an easy solution to control for lexical confounds. But then I think obviously this isn't a one solves all approach because your model, maybe like your model might not have subword representations, then you run into a problem. So it's really like a model dependent thing. And we also like talked about how my previous experiments showed that there is some like dramatic variation in performance across different what kind different kinds of lexical representations that you choose to substitute your controlled items with. So I think there isn't like a like a single good way to do evaluation, but I think it's generally good to think about and kind of spell out the research question that you want to address by using this particular data set and test to support certain claims that you're making in the paper. But I think having said this, I do think it seems increasingly not common to actually sit back and think about these things as the trend is evaluating on many, many different tests. And you kind of rarely get a chance to think about, oh, what are the actual assumptions of the tests that you're using? So I guess my recommendation would partly be to think about these things before using and applying the test. But I think like the test proposers like myself also have to work hard to actually talk about these things a lot and propose improved ways to do evaluation and actually like, convince people to adopt them, right? So I think these kind of issues will keep coming up because at test creation time, you can't really foresee everything that people would want to do with the data set and what setups people would want to adopt in the future. So 
it's more like an iterative process to improve evaluation to get more reliable answers to the question we want to ask. So it would be good for the community to be kind of open-minded in general about evolution of benchmarks and kind of refining the test tools that we have and sort of a general interest in discussing what makes a good evaluation. Yeah, I guess that was very broad scoped, but yeah, I think it's it's always good to like think of what you're actually testing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's a great note to end this discussion on. Uh, thanks a lot for taking time to talk to us about composition generalization. Uh, this was a great discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs>